Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'm only as hip as my guests. And I'm going to tell you something, people. This past weekend, it was uh, very wintry weather in New Jersey and actually across a lot of the country. Very cold for, no- for November. And it's very weird because on Friday night, I made a casserole. I made vegetarian sausage, ruby gold tomatoes, and tricolor peppers. On Saturday, Joanne made a casserole. So I'm thinking we've been married for two months and we've suddenly turned into casserole people. And then last night, we used a crock pot. So, I don't know. It's only been two months of marriage, but I'm starting to go downhill. Anyway, we have a great show today. Uh, my guest, such a good actor. You know, it's funny. He was in uh, he, he's in a movie I love called The uh, Wanderers. He's been acting for years and just steadily working. And uh, he's a fellow Jersey guy, even though he's from North Jersey. I'm from South Jersey. We still bond, except for when it comes to certain food names and sports teams. And my guest is Alan Rosenberg. How you doing, Alan? All right, Stephen. How are you? I'm doing well. So, so your first congratulations. Pit- you're newlywed. I'm, I've been married for three months. Oh, really? What now? Now you got married. What was the date? Because I got married. It's funny. I got married on Friday, the 13th of September. Oh my goodness! Wow, that's tempting fate. August the third, I got married. Now, did you get married in L.A. or New Jersey or somewhere else? No, I got married up in Napa, okay, California. Uh, my 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 wife, who I've known for 50 years, I met her when she was 13 and I was 18. She's my best friend's little sister, excuse me. <clears throat> I mean, she has friends who own a vineyard up in Napa, so we got married at their house. It was lovely. Well, that's awesome. Well, congratulations for you. Thank you, thank you. And now, you're from Passaic, and I was thinking, you know, I, I know you're from Passaic, and it's funny, when I was uh, my early, in the early 80s, I was in high school, and I still remember Passaic, because it's the first time I heard about it. I was a huge Springsteen fan, and one of his brothers had a bootleg album of Springsteen live in the Passaic Theater. And that's how I heard about your great uh, your great city. Now, whenever I hear someone's from Passaic, I think of that album. Probably a, it was probably a Capitol Theater, I, I bet you, in Passaic. I bet you, it, you know, Passaic's a great town. We, we, I, I, there are a lot of people. I can name you a dozen uh, people who have had a great impact in, in entertainment, in, in the arts, um, in football, eight, Eight guys off my high school football team went to the pros. Then another one who graduated with me would have gone to the pros if he died in the Marshall College plane crash. Um, it, it, uh, it, it poets, comedians, for some reason, it was only a town of 50,000 people when I was growing up. It was a, it was a very fertile ground. It was, I'm, I'm very proud of my hometown. Now, when you were in high school, were you an athlete? Did you act? Or what, what was your high school persona? Like, who were you in high school? I wasn't. Well, I was actually on our first golf team that we ever had. Um, my senior year, but I was, I was a debater. I was I was a president of the debate club. Actually, I was president of our little chapter of the National Forensic League, and uh, I thought I'd be a lawyer. I was going to be pre-law, but I was in my high school play, and I was in my junior high school play, and uh, all through summer camp growing up, I was always in the plays. So I had that. I, 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 I it was in me. <laughs> Now you went to a college. Uh, was, you went to a college called Case Western. Case Western Reserve University. Actually, we, 
it used to be Western Reserve University and Case Institute of Technology. And the year I went there, 1968, they merged to begin Case Western Reserve University. Um, one of many schools is considered to be the Harvard of the Midwest. It's got a great medical school. Um, uh, you know, now it's got a great drama department, actually. I go back there every couple of years and work with the students. Um, but it's in Cleveland, Ohio. It's a terrific school. Met my best friend there, whose sister I just married. I mean, it was kind of set me. I mean, that's why I discovered I wanted to, you know, I, I, it, was, it was a very turbulent time. I went to college in the 1960s. My late brother was one of the leaders of the student movement back then. I was very political. Um, I, w- I, w- I was, uh, you know, I, w- I did a lot of protesting against the war in Vietnam and forced civil rights. Uh, my, my brother, who was my hero, like I said, was one of the leaders. And I, um, I kind of followed his lead back then. And I figured that, you know, and I went there pre-law, but I figured theater at that time, I did a lot of guerrilla theater. And I, and I thought that, that the theater and the arts could be a way perhaps to change the world, affect change in the world. So I, I, I had that crazy idea in my head. I want to ask you something. Um, I want to ask you real quick, because you brought up something. Your brother was a political activist. And you said, you know, you, you had that spark and, you know, you wanted to be involved in that. How do you think political activism has changed now with all the social media to back then? Was it much more grassroots back then? Or what's your take? Because you had a brother who was very involved in it. Well, I think about it a lot. You know, I was involved, too. And, you know, later on, just I became president of the Screen Actors Guild. I've always had a political bent. Right now, I marvel at the fact as bad as the, the country is right now. I've, I'm, I'm, you know, I've never dreamed I'd, I'd live to see what's going on in this country right now. Back in the 60s, my brother and my sister-in-law, um, his, his widow, and about 20 other kids were able to get hundreds of thousands of people to go to Washington, D.C., confront the government. We helped end the war. We helped get a president to resign, a corrupt president to resign. And that was without social media. Now, with social media, it seems much more difficult not to maybe get people together, but to move them to action. And I went to the... Uh, the, the women's march, the women's march uh, at the inauguration. I went down to Washington D.C. and be, I, I knew the night of the election I had to go to D.C. because there'd be something happening at the inauguration. And I'm standing there with three million people. It was wonderful to see all those people there. We stand around for two and a half hours. We don't move anywhere. I said, "Are we supposed to be marching somewhere?" And somebody said to me, "We can't." I said, "Why not?" They said, "Because we we don't have a permit to go on the mall." I said, you have a permit to go on the mall. You have three million people here. That's all the permit you need. And it, it seems to me, and I you know it, it, during the Iraq War, I, I went to a bunch of demonstrations, that people had lost the, 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 the willingness to really put themselves in the line and confront the powers that be when they need to be confronted. And, uh, and hopefully I'll be proven wrong, you know, but, but it's... I don't think social media has helped. I, I think that some people think when they sign a petition on moveon.org or they post for their friends, which I do a lot. I write songs, anti-Trump songs, and put them on the internet. But I think they've done enough, and their job is done because they've contributed in some way. But I really do believe at a certain point this government, this particular government we have now, is going to have to be confronted. And, 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 I, and, and uh, it, 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 you know, I've been worried about this since the primaries that this could end in a, in a not very pretty way. And, and, and I think people, you know, I'm very proud. My sister-in-law got arrested with Jane Fonda a couple of weeks ago in Washington, D.C., you know, protesting uh, about climate change and against the president's removal from uh, removing us from the Paris Accords. And I was 
very proud of them. You know, the people are going to have to be willing. If they, unless they like what's going on right now, but they really are still with trepidation as I am. They're going to have to be willing to get in the streets, perhaps get arrested, and, 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 and show their will in force, you know? I mean, and it's, 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 that's a long answer to your question. I don't think social media has necessarily helped. And it, has, it certainly hasn't replaced the ingenuity and the desire, and, 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 and we've also had the draft to motivate us, you know, I mean, I, 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 not for me or my brother necessarily, but that's partly what brought a whole generation of kids out to protest the war in Vietnam, was their, their lives were on the line, literally, you know, there was a draft back then, and uh, so I don't know what it's going to take now, but, yeah, you know, things keep happening that make me think that people just storm into the streets now, they're not going to take it anymore, and we keep on taking it. So I don't know. So, uh, to answer your question, I don't know. <laughs> so now you're in college. Now, now, is it true you went to the Yale School of Drama? Yes, I did. Now, how did you choose drama? I mean, how did you choose Yale? Well, that's an interesting story. I, 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 uh, I, I at that day, when I was a senior in college, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. And I, I told my parents I was going to apply to drama schools and law schools and political science programs. And they sent me several hundred dollars for all my application fees to those schools. And I lost it all playing poker. And, and I only had enough money to apply to one school. I applied to the Yale School of Drama. And I didn't think that I, I, mean, I, I hadn't been acting on that kind of level for very long. I, I really didn't think I had a chance. And I had to fly from Cleveland to Philadelphia to audition. And I overslept. And my brother-in-law now, my roommate in college, made me get up and get out of bed, get dressed, and go to the airport. I went to Philadelphia and auditioned for the Yale School of Drama, and then I was I was scared to death because I only accepted ten people, and I had no idea how I was going to tell my parents that I had gotten rejected at all those schools I said I had applied to because I didn't apply to any of them. But somehow, and somehow, sometimes I do believe in a higher power, but somehow I got into the Yale School of Drama, and uh, which is I guess really where I wanted to go, which is well, you know the only place I applied to. So yeah, I went. And uh, it was a great experience while I lasted. I only, I only stayed there for a year and two-thirds. I dropped out a third of the way, two-thirds of the way through my second year. Now, now why did you drop out? Why did you drop out? Well, I, I, when I look back on it now, most, maybe it was Meryl Streep was in my class, and, and we were very close friends. We're both from New Jersey. As you know, she's from New Jersey, Bernardsville. And we became very good friends, and, and, and I think I was in mostly unrequited love with her. We became very friendly, but I, she was the first sort of love of my life, and, and there a lot of people were in love with her, and, and it was painful. So I want to look back at that. But the reason I, I said I left at the time was we, we had a project in our second year. Our class was divided into two, and I, was, I did this play called The Last Analysis. I played this part that was written for Zero Mostel, the part of like a, a guy my age now, like a guy in the 60s who was a very rotund comedian who did a lot of accents, and I can't do any of that stuff. And it was hard, and, and, and I was uh, rehearsing it, and, and I got sick, and I had to go to the hospital. Meryl actually took me to the hospital because I was completely dehydrated. And then I came out, I came out of the hospital, I did the play, and I actually pulled it off, sort of, the opening night. And then a friend of mine came back and told me that Bobby Lewis, the very famous acting teacher who was the head of the acting program at the time, um, had walked out after the first act. And uh, that really upset me. And I, I was, I had, uh, the next day I went to class and I asked Bobby Lewis what he thought of the play we'd done the night before. And he started talking about it. 
And then he started talking about the second act in much more vague terms. Like, I raised my hand. I said, Bobby, I heard you walk out after the first act. Why are you talking about the second act? He said, well, I did because I didn't like the way you were directed by Morty. And I said, well, then, you know, maybe you should just stay. So I got very angry, and I stood up, and I walked out of class, and I never came back. And, it was, and, at, and at the time, you know, I was also thinking I was ready to go to New York and try to start my career as an actor. At the time... In your third year at Yale, you were basically just a spear carrier in their professional repertory uh, company. But because Merrill was my class, they changed all the rules. And literally the day after I dropped out of school, they made a new rule that all third-year actors got their equity cards, they got their dues and their initiation uh, fees paid, and they got to play bigger roles at the repertory theater. And had I known that, I would have stayed in school. But like I have many, at many points in my life and my career, I kind of made the the um, impulsive choice and it wasn't necessarily the right one for me but things worked out in the end yeah now now you did, did you go to New York and then what, what was your path once I went you got to New York, York I did a bunch of odd jobs I, I settled on driving a cab for most of my time in New York while I was trying to make this an actor and I uh, started auditioning for plays I, I the first thing I auditioned for I caught it was a terrible off off Broadway play called Dwindleberries <laughs> And uh, it, I was thrilled I got it. It was the first thing I auditioned for. And uh, I remember Merrill actually came down from New Haven to see it because I was so happy I got my first job. And I, 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 I said, she, I was sitting out in the lobby of the theater when she walked in. I said, no, you can't see me. And she turned around and walked away. Another impulsive thing I did that was pretty stupid, I guess. So, but anyway, yeah, I started auditioning for things, driving a cab, and I'd go to the limousine. I demonstrated products in department stores. And I did a lot of off-off Broadway theater, and I started doing regional theater. And then I did a play. I got I, I, a friend of mine from Yale had written a play that was done at the O'Neill Playwrights Conference, which was this great place where a lot of actors went during the summer. It was kind of like a summer camp for creativity, you know, to do new plays and work on them. And I went up there to do his play, and I, I, I was a, I could play up while I was up there called uh, A Prayer for My Daughter, written by Thomas Dave. Who's one of the great playwrights of our time, who unfortunately is no longer with us. But uh, I did that play up at the O'Neill, and it was an amazing play. And, and, and uh, we did we, at the O'Neill. You do plays twice. You do you do you're staged the readings. You're holding the script in your hand. But you do it, and then and then you rehearse it the next day, and you do it again two days later. And we did it the first night, and it was so electric and so wonderful that by the second time we did it, every major theater artistic director in America was there, Gordon Davidson from L.A., Joe Papp from New York, and many others. And Joe Papp picked the play up and brought it to the Public Theater in New York, and I went with it. And tragically for me, it's still probably the best thing I've ever done. It's an incredible play with an incredible part for me. And uh, that kind of started my career, doing that play at the Public Theater. Now, when did you uh, cross over to movies and TVs? I know I said I love The Wanderers. I remember we had a cable network in uh, South Jersey, near the Philadelphia area, called uh, Prism. And there's a show. Me and my buddies used to watch that, and we used to watch Hollywood Nights with Robert Wall. And uh, uh, how did The Wanderers come about? Was that your like first all big audition, or or how did that? How did you get to that part? Well, well it was my first audition. The first, uh, the, the, the first part I almost got. I got cast, it was pretty funny audition stories, one me to tell it, but I was cast in uh, the movie Born on the Fourth of July, 
with Al Pacino. Several years later, Tom Cruise ended up doing it, but Al Pacino was doing it originally, and we rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it, and then he walked off the film, and it was canceled. That, that was the first role I ever got in the movie. Um, and uh, you, want to, you want to hear the audition story for us? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, love, I love good stories. Well, I, 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 at the time, I, I, a, a good friend of mine was playing with, with a Broadway show called Anna Christie, starring Liv Ullman. And they recruited me to play on their softball team at Central Park. Central Park Park is a great Broadway show softball league. And uh, so I was playing for Anna Christie, playing third base. And we come in and it's the playoffs. So we're playing against Pablo Hummel, starring Al Pacino. And he's playing third base for Pablo Hummel. And uh, it's a close game. When it comes to the last inning, we're up by a run. They have been on second and third. And Al Pacino comes up to bat. And they pitch him the ball. And he runs up on the ball out of the batter's box and screams a triple over my head. And they win the game. But that's supposed to be an automatic out in this league if you run out of the batter's box to hit the ball. But they don't call on him because he's Al Pacino. <laughs> so they win the game. We all throw our gloves on the ground. We're screaming at the umpire. Fuck you, nobody. Know, the playoffs kind of. And that's it. We lose the game. So two weeks later, I get a call from my agent saying, you got an audition for the movie Born the Fourth of July based on Ron Kovic's book with uh, Al Pacino. You have to go audition with Al Pacino. I say, oh my God. <laughs> so I go in, I work on the audition to get very serious. And I go in and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, uh, I read with Al Pacino. And the, they, they, I auditioned for a different role than the one I eventually got. Um, it was a role of, uh, Al Pacino was playing Ron Kovic, who just got back from Vietnam, and he's a quadriplegic, and I play, I was auditioning for the role of his best friend, they're sitting out on his porch in Long Island, and it's a very emotional scene, and we, I, I, he, he, Al Pacino had the first line in the scene, he takes forever to speak, and he's a great actor and a great artist, and he takes his time, and he really, it's just by his powers of concentration, all of a sudden we're not in an office in New York City anymore, we're really out in a Long Island evening on his porch, and I can almost hear the crickets chirping and stuff. And he wells up with emotion, he comes up with, out with his first line, and it hits me like a ton of bricks, and I receive it, and I take forever to speak, and it's like, not like acting, it's like real life, it's fantastic. We get done with the audition, and Al Pacino says to me, he says, you're a good actor. And like, I well up, and I say, oh my God, I said, thank you so much, that means so much to me. I say, that means so much to me, coming from you, you're one of the great actors of our generation, but you cheat like a motherfucker in softball. <laughs> he said, what? And I said, you were so far out of the batter's box. I said, the only reason they didn't call you on is because you're Al Pacino, one of the great actors of our generation. They looked at me for a few seconds, they were, ha, 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 and he laughed. And I ended, up getting, I ended up getting cast in the movie, and then they canceled it. So how do you bounce back when they? How do you bounce back as a young actor when they cancel a role with Al Pacino, especially? Well, it was hard, you know. I, 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 I was on my way to Mexico to shoot it. We shoot, we shoot my stuff in Mexico, and I came back to Los Angeles where my late brother was. He, my late brother, who was one of the leaders of the student movement in the sixties, became the youngest president of Warner Brothers Pictures ever. My brother was out here in L.A. before me, right? and so I got to come out here and hang out with my brother. I got my first job actually on camera, which was an episode of Barnaby Jones. While I was waiting to go to Mexico to shoot the film with Pacino, because I kept delaying it, delaying it, and then finally canceled it. It was it was heartbreaking. It was like a dream come true. Not only was it was working with Al Pacino, but it was it was uh, you know a political movie about Vietnam. It was it was like a dream come true for me. It was, and then my second job, my second audition I got was when I was at Yale. The first I, my first year at Yale, we'd done a project 
um, where uh, uh, a second-year director took a novel and adapted it, and uh, first-year actors acted in it. And the book that I, I got that uh, the, the adaptation of was The Last Temptation of Christ. And at Yale, I played Jesus. I had a great time doing it. I thought it was a phenomenal book. I thought someday it would be a movie. And I came to New York, and I got this agent. I said, you know, someday we're going to do this as a movie. And all of a sudden, right after the, the thing with Born uh, on the Fourth of July happened, all of a sudden I hear they're doing uh, The Last Temptation of Christ, starring, first I hear starring Robert De Niro, and uh, directed by Martin Scorsese. Um, and, 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 and I knew, and perhaps it's fate, I got an audition for it. And I go in, and another interesting audition story. I go in and uh, to meet uh, Martin Scorsese for The Last Temptation of Christ. And while I'm sitting there to go in, I'm getting like really nervous to be Martin Scorsese. This young woman walks in with a boom box, like some kind of hippie, and she walks into his office and she laughs. And I said, who is that? So I said, that's, uh, she called herself Madonna. She had gone into audition before, just before I did, and a bunch of other people. So I go in to see Scorsese, and uh, we're talking, and I said, you know, it seems to me that this is a third part of a trilogy for you, this this book, this movie, The Last Temptation of Christ. I said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, you did the movie Raging Bull, which is about Jake LaMotta asking himself, am I a beast or am I a man? He's got that great scene in the padded cell where he's saying, I'm a beast, I'm a beast, I'm a beast. Then you got the King of Comedy, which is about a very ordinary man who wants to be a god. I said, now you got a movie about a god who wants to be a man. And Scorsese says, oh, I like that. He says, I like that. <laughs> and I'm convinced that's why I got cast in that movie. So I, I got cast in that movie, and we had a couple of rehearsals for it. Aiden Quinn was going to play Jesus in it. Um, but then, because of protests from the religious right, they canceled that film. So my first two, my first two films I was cast in, the first one was Born on the Fourth of July with Al Pacino, and uh, written by uh, Oliver Stone. And then the second movie I was cast in was uh, Last Temptation of Christ, directed by Martin Scorsese, and they both were canceled. So, and then came the and then came the Wanderers, and that was another interesting story. I had auditioned for the Wanderers. Um, Scott Rudin actually was, 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 a, was a great producer right now was a casting director back then he was an 18 year old casting director I think he dropped out of high school to become a casting director and he cast um, uh, The Wanderers and before that he had cast The King of the Gypsies and he had seen me in the play A Prayer for My Daughter and was kind of interested in me playing the lead in King of the Gypsies um, but when I got close to casting that part, he'd seen me in this play A Prayer for My Daughter several times. I played a gay character in it. And I heard, I don't know if this is true or not, but he thought I was just too gay to play the lead in King of the Gypsies, but I didn't get that part. And they met me and felt guilty about having done that, so he really promoted me to play the lead in The, in the Wanderers. So I was supposed to play the role of Richie in The Wanderers, the lead role. And uh, I spent like a month like with Phil Kaufman, the director, up in the Bronx, um, meeting real kids from the Bronx, well, I'm from Jersey, it's not that different, and improvising scenes and talking about it was really fantastic. And then I had to meet the producer, Martin Ransahoff, in New York, and uh, at the Sherry Netherlands Hotel. And it was all done. I was cast in The Lead and the Wanderers, my first movie. And I go to meet Martin Ransahoff, and he asks me how old I am. I'm sitting there with Phil, and, and, and I think Scott Rudin was in the office, and here's Martin Ransahoff. And he says, how old are you? And I said, well, I'm, I told him the truth. I said, I'm 26. And he says, see, that's a problem. He said, we want to cast real kids in this movie. I think they'll photograph too old, uh, you know, to, to play a high school kid. And I said, oh, shit. And, uh, and I, 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 
really depressed. And I walk out of the the, the room, and there's a, uh, Tony Kalem, the actress Tony Kalem, woman Tony Kalem, T O N I. And I kind of she went to college with me for a year. I knew she was like uh, six months older than I. And so I say, Hey, Tony, and I hug her. And I say, When you go in there, lie about your age. I said to her. <laughs> so she goes in, he asks her how old she is. She says, I'm 22. He says, yes, She's perfect. That's the age she's going for. She got cast, but she got cast in the movie, and I didn't. And I was really depressed. This would be my third big thing in the, that, 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 that didn't work out. And uh, and then I, for some reason, I had a spot by Scott Wooten's office. I was on my way to a, a family reunion out in Long Island, out in the Hamptons. And I had a stop in Scott Wooten's office. And he said, look, I'm really sorry it didn't work out with the Wanderers. And I said, you know what, Scott, fuck it. I said, Turkey's a better role anyway. And I, I don't know why I said that, but I did. And I leave to go to my family reunion in, in Long Island. And uh, Monday morning, they, they call up and they say they've, they've decided to replace the actor playing Turkey and they wanted to send a helicopter out to get me and fly me into New York to start to get my hair shaved and start rehearsing that day. But I felt horrible about that, actually, because I actually knew the actor who was cast as Turkey and I really had no idea when he said that. This could possibly happen. I felt a little. I felt a little Rosemary babyish about it. You know, he was a really nice guy. Um, but but I did. I came to New York that day. I didn't have to fly a helicopter because my cousins gave me a ride back into the city. They shaved my head and I started rehearsing. And that was my first movie. Um, now, uh, now you're in the movie, and now after that, you're you do it. How long was? How long were you on set for for that movie? How long what? How long? How long were you working on that movie? Oh, I don't know, probably probably two, three months, probably, I would think. So now, as you're working on that movie, are you? do you have an agent looking for other parts for when you're done that movie? Or what, how is your progression in your career? Well, yeah, that was, a, that, that was a very heavy time. Starting with a play, I did a prayer for my daughter. Um, there was an agent, he was a great agent, he's still a manager, named David Gus York. And he had seen me at the O'Neill Playwrights Conference, and then he came to see me in the play in New York. And he brought uh, every casting director who came to New York to see me in the play, and every agent who was in New York came to see that play. You know, and it was a very kind of heady time for me. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, there, was, there, was, there was a lot of opportunity then around the Wanderers, but then, you know, I did the Wanderers, and I did another terrible movie called Happy Birthday Gemini, based on the Broadway show Gemini. And that kind of ended my career for a couple of years right then. You know, that was, it, was, it, was, it was not a good movie at all. And I had, it actually, it was, a, it was a depressing time. I had to go back to driving a cab. You know, I'd done this play of prayer for my daughter. I, I was like a new face in the New York Times. I got these great reviews, like The Wanderers. And I did this movie, and my career just, like, sort of stopped for a couple of, you know, for a year or two. And it, it kind of was a hint, uh, you know, as to what the vagaries of this business were going to, uh, be like, you know, for the, for, for the rest of my life, actually. I mean, you know, it, it goes up and it goes down, you know, and uh, so, yeah, I had an agent who was a great agent. He was really working hard for me. But, uh, you know, ultimately, it's up to you to kind of form your career and, and kind of meet every challenge, you know, and I didn't necessarily do that. You know, nobody does every step of the way. You know, there are ups and downs. Well, now, how did you bounce back? What, uh, I mean, what was your part that you felt like you were back in the game now. Well, first of all, I'll tell you one more funny story. Because <laughs> it's actually the first chapter in the book I've been trying to write. For, uh, I, 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 went, I did a prayer for my daughter and did those movies, and I was back to driving a cab. 
and then I got an audition for uh, the play uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame at the Public Theater. I was driving a cab, and I really wanted a job badly. I wanted to work at the Public Theater again, so I took it very seriously, and I and I memorized this monologue that Quasimodo had in the, in the play, and I, and I really worked hard on it, I did a really good job. I had to go in the Public Theater, the very theater where I'd done a prayer for my daughter, where I had to get naked in that play, A Prayer for My Daughter, which was, you know, so in, 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 uh, that, that comes into play a little bit later in the story. So, and, and, and I had a great success here, so I'm feeling good about it. I really worked on the monologue. I'm working for a director I do, Ted Cornell. The guy, Ted Cornell. And I come and I do the monologue for him. And he, uh, and, and I really did a good job. And there's like silence for five seconds after I finished the monologue. And then Ted Cornell says to me, he says, Hell, that was amazing. That was great. He said, but I want you to do it again. And this time away, you get naked. <laughs> And I said, naked? He said, yeah, 100% naked. I said, let me think about it. So I walked to the back of the theater, and I think, you know, this sort of makes sense. I mean, the whole speech is about how much Quasimodo hates his hump back, you know, and, and I can use that. The clothing is a metaphor for that. I can rip my clothing off. I'm trying to rip away this deformity. And uh, I said, I, you know, it makes, I got naked in this theater before. It worked all right. I know this director. He's not coming on to me. And I said, I can do this. So I, I come back in the theater. I launch into the monologue. Halfway through, I start ripping at my clothes until by the end of it, I'm a naked, sweating, heaving mass on the floor. <laughs> and again, there's like silence for like now 10 seconds. And Ted Cornell says, Alan, that was, that was terrific. That was even better than the first time. But I meant emotionally naked. True <laughs> <laughs> uh, story. Uh, and then I didn't get that job. Uh, so then I got to my taxi cab, humiliated. And, and uh, so that, what, what, how did I break out of that? You know, I I, I, just, I, just, I decided at the time that I was just finished, I stopped acting. I decided I was going to go to law school. And I took the LSATs and did all right, and I applied to law schools and got in. And while I was doing that to make some money, I did. I got offered a guest starring role in a soap opera, Ryan's Hope, in New York, where a lot of terrific actors would come through and do day spots or recurring roles on Ryan's Hope. And while I was doing it, I met... The woman who was about who was going to become my second wife, Mark Helgenberger, who was one of the stars of Ryan. So, but that was going to be my last job, and then I was going to be out of the business. But then I got cast in a play called Buck at the American Place Theater, um, which was a really interesting play. I thought and I thought that would be the last thing I would do before I would exit stage left. It was a really good play. It was it was uh, I played the lead character named Buck, but it was also Jimmy Smith's first play. New York, Morgan Freeman was one of the, was in it. I was a Priscilla Lopez was one of the stars. Of course, Line was in it. It was just a really great experience. I, I kind of wasn't very good at the play, and it kind of failed, but it kind of got my juices going again. I realized I wasn't done trying to be an actor, you know, and, and, and that kind of got me going again. And then I got I got I got cast in something like I got cast in a Kojak a TV movie playing Kojak's partner, which kind of. Uh, you know, maybe keep on going. You know, every every job at that time in my career would kind of give me enough momentum to get to the next job. You know. Now you have this momentum going. Now, yeah. How does yeah, but, how does L.A. Law happen? L.A. Law. Well, L.A. Law happened. I I, uh, I I played a guest star in L.A. Law like before I became a regular on it. Then I got cast uh, in a show called Civil Wars. It was a TV show called Civil Wars, which is about divorce attorneys. 
and I auditioned for this character. I, I auditioned, well, before I, well, no, I auditioned for a character named Eli Levinson, who was, uh, Mariel Hemingway was the lead in the series, with the Stephen Bosco series, and I played, I, I auditioned for the part of her partner, Eli Levinson, who has a nervous breakdown on the pilot episode, and then the character is supposed to be gone. And this character named Charlie, played by Peter Onorati, took over as her partner. And I was supposed to be gone. So I, I, auditioned, I, I auditioned for it and, 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 uh, and did the pilot. And then I went to New York with my ex-wife, Mark, who was still very close to him. And she, because she was on the show China Beach, and I went to New York with her for the upfronts. And while I was there, I got an audition for the play Lost in Yonkers on Broadway. To, uh, and I went to that audition. And I didn't get the play. I mean, Kevin Spacey was doing the role on Broadway, but I got offered the national tour of Boston Yonkers. And I really needed a job, even though we had just had a kid. I didn't want to go on the road, but I really needed a job at that time. So I accepted it. Then I came to back to uh, L.A., and I hear that uh, Civil Wars wants to make me a regular on the show. They want to use me like three or four episodes. And I said, well, you know, I just contracted to go on the a national tour with this Neil Simon play. So they made me a, a regular, all shows produced in the show Civil Wars. And, and, and then I informed, uh, my, my ambition in life was always just to do Broadway. That's all I ever wanted to do when I started acting, since I was a kid. And, and But I, I had to tell Manny Eisenberg, the producer of Boston Yonkers, I had to back out of the national tour, because I got just got this TV series. And he was furious. He would say, you'll never work in a theater again. How dare you? Then I go back and I start doing Civil Wars, and they offer me to replace Bruno Kirby, actually, to replace Kevin Spacey in Lost in Yonkers. So I got to do Lost in Yonkers on Broadway, and got my first TV series, my first regular job on a TV series on Civil Wars. And then, after doing two, Civil Wars for two and a half years, they took my character and Debbie Mazar's character from Civil Wars, and they moved us on to L.A. Law. At the time, they said that we were the, only, the first characters ever to switch networks um, and play the same characters on another TV series. Um, so they, they, made, they made us both regulars on the last season of L.A. Law. I did every, season, every episode of the last season of L.A. Law, playing the same character I played on Civil Wars, who was a great character, Eli Levinson, who was very, uh, I mean, was a very well-written character. Well, as an, actor, as, as an actor, what makes it a great character to you? Well, he had a nervous breakdown. The pilot had to, so I got to, I got to, you know, chew the scenery a little bit. But just, it was a, a guy, a great writer named uh, William Finkelstein, Billy Finkelstein, one of my best friends, wrote Civil Wars. And and I think, uh, he, 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 Billy is somewhat of an actor as well. But I think I'm a pretty good manifestation of who he would be as an actor if he were an actor instead of a writer. And he wrote this character, I think, for himself. And I just understood it immediately. And it's interesting, because it was a, you know, like me, he was a, a, a young, middle-aged Jewish guy who could be an attorney. And it was, you know, a kind of a very vulnerable, a sympathetic character. But I felt I knew how to play it the moment I read the script. And what's interesting about being an actor is I felt that same way when I read the part Prayer for My Daughter years earlier, which was a, a you know, a bisexual junkie, um, uh, waif of a character, which is really nothing like me, but it has to do with the writing. You know, there's something about the writing and, and that, that makes me feel like I can easily get this part into my body and vice versa. And that's why I felt about Civil Wars, you know, and, and it kind of really worked out. 
doesn't happen that often, but it's happened to me a couple of times on stage and a couple of times, you know, you know in front of the camera. But, you know, it's, it's very rare. But, but that was one of them, uh, Civil Wars, L.A. Law. Now, you did that show, and then eventually then you end up on Civil, which is a sitcom. Now, yeah. What? Yeah. How did they approach you? Because if you look at your resume, you know you're a theater guy. You've done a lot of serious, more serious roles. How did How did they approach you? I mean, did you have to audition for that, or did they know of you and they offered you it? Well, you know what? For the only time in my life, that was one of the one of the instances where they wanted to. They wanted me. You know, I did have to go in and meet meet Sybil and Chuck Lorre to create the show. But I really had no desire do a sitcom, you know, it's not my favorite, um, you know, place to do, to practice my craft, um, for a bunch of reasons, but they were very kind of, uh, you know, very positive, very aggressive, you know, I'm an actor, people love me, I love them, and, well, that's not a good quality, our president has that fucking quality, but, but they were very nice to me, and what the amazing thing about Civil Wars, L.A. Law, then Civil, and then after that, Chicago Hope, is for none of those, I was regulars in all those shows, I never had to go to the network. You know, they they, they, re, they really wanted me to do Sybil. They were really nice to me. And and I was, I, I was reluctant enough, so I said, look, I don't want to go to the network. And they said, okay, we're just offering you the part. They did. It was, a, it was, it was, you know, Chuck Lorre is a terrific comedy writer. Um, and, and it just worked. It was a job, you know, and, and, and uh, Carson Warner produced it. They have a tremendous track record. I was fairly newly married and, and liked the idea of making money. And, uh, and it was a different thing. You know, the, the one good thing about sitcoms is that they're done uh, basically on a proscenium. They're, they're, they're rehearsed and performed almost like a play. And, and, and that's where I really felt the most comfortable and happy in my entire career is working on the stage and, and sitcoms are sort of like that but that said it wasn't it wasn't a terribly happy experience the whole civil thing I mean it was it was it was fine you know I, I, I guess there's nothing wrong with experiencing you know all the possibilities this profession can offer you so it was good to do a, do a sitcom once but it wasn't a very happy experience for me for many reasons now you a lot of civil stories I don't want to know the wrong What's that? But, huh? No, what did I you say? I've a lot of fairly funny civil stories, but actually she, she's she been nice to me in the, in the, in the, in the, since we did the show. And I, I don't, but it, I, I just didn't love doing sitcoms. It, you know, it's, it's a strange kind of, to me, it's a foreign environment. You know, it's, it, there's not much reality to it. And, well, and, and, yeah, go ahead. No, well, you, you were... The one great thing about done the sitcom now are you sitting to yourself you tell your agent or you know or your people that you want to get back into the drama field well yeah I'm sure we had a conversation you know they, they always kept on working and then after Sybil you know like every other actor every time a job ends I'm sure I'll never work again but then right after Sybil I got a call from my I, from Chicago Hope and I, I did like two episodes 
like at the end of one of the seasons of Chicago Hope, and then they offered me a regular job on that show for the last season. So I went right from Sybil to Chicago Hope and did every episode in the last season of Chicago Hope. And then, and then right after Chicago Hope ended, I got this TV series called The Guardian, which was a terrific series, which I did for, I think, like three seasons. I mean, so I, I, I got really fortunate. I did like a decade of like nonstop five different TV series of all shows produced one after the other. And then, and then I decided to run for the president of the Screen Actors Guild, which was a terrible, terrible career decision. I'm still happy that I did it and proud of the work I did there. It was a horrible career decision. And that, that basically stopped my career for nine years. Why did you decide to run for it? Because of your background of the, you know, the political activism? Or did you feel like actors were getting treated wrongly? I mean, what, what made you decide yeah. to run for it? Yeah, well, that was that was part of it. I always been politically active, and I've been. I, I, when I was in New York, I, my first wife was very political. I, I, she got me to run for the Council of Actors Equity Association, um, which was a, a very frustrating experience. But I came out to L.A. and, and uh, I, I, I didn't have much to do with because SAG hadn't been very kind to me actually in a dispute I had. Wanted a job. Another interesting project called Playing for Time with Vanessa Redgrave, where I was fired. It's a very harrowing story. And the union hadn't backed me up, so I kind of just went on trying to forge my career and didn't worry much about the union. And then I was out in LA and my career started going fairly well again. I did Civil Wars and LA Law. And then um, there was a dispute between SAG and the agents, the ATA, the organization that represents our agents. And my friend Jill Beck Williams, who's a terrific actress, I was playing poker with her. And she, she suggested I go to this meeting for actors who are working, what they call high profile actors, to talk about this issue. And I went there, and at the Screen Actors Guild, I'd never been to the building before, actually. And I was tremendously inspired by several actors, this actor Kent McCord from, uh, from Adam 12, and uh, Scott Wilson, a very good friend of mine who died a couple of years ago, who were really unionists. I got really inspired by everything they were saying that night, and I decided to run for the board of the union. And I did that, and I sat on the board for three years, and I just saw that I saw corruption like I'd never seen in my life before, and, and lying like I'd never seen, mendacity like I'd never seen before in my life. And I hadn't seen since, since until Donald Trump. But it was just unbelievable, and it was clear to me what was happening to actors and other corporations. And my late brother, like I said, was president of Warner Brothers Pictures. I thought I had some kind of insight into the way the studios thought and the way they worked. And I just saw the way they were trying to roll back all of our income uh, streams. And, and, and uh, I went on a committee. I was on the board of the union, and I went with a bunch of people to try and get famous actors to run for the presidents of the union. We, we talked to Marty Sheen, who couldn't do it at the time, although he's a great guy, and later ran for the board when I was president, but he couldn't do it at the time, and a bunch of other well-known actors. We couldn't find anybody to really do it at the time. Not that I was that well-known, but I'd done five DC TV series in a row, and that's who votes on Screen Actors Guild elections as working actors, not the public. And I had worked with a lot of actors, and so I thought maybe I stood a chance of winning the election and so we couldn't find anybody better than me to do it so I said you know what I'll run and I did and <laughs> I won and it was uh, it was pretty incredible and and, and, uh, and then I you know did it for four years I ran I, I was two terms it was it was during the most tumultuous time perhaps 
Comedian Actors Guild history. My friend Anna Ed Asner, who was president during a strike, would say that I think that when I was president during the writers, the hundred day writers strike, I was president during all the advent of all this new media, which has changed the way the whole business operates. It was a very trying time, you know, while they were trying to merge our union SAG with AFTRA, which was a terrible thing for actors, which they've since accomplished since I was president. I just saw, like every other industry in America, where they were trying to wipe out the middle class and help the corporations. And, and I thought maybe I could do something about it. I, I, I tried my hardest, but uh, unfortunately lost that war um, to, our, to our detriment. Now, you said... Uh, you said uh it hurt your career. Why did it hurt your career? Were people pissed off? Were the the brass pissed off at you because you were actually fighting for actors? Or how did well, it? I think so. I, re- I really tried to be a really good president. You know, for the four years I was president, some of that was by choice. And I worked a very little bit, not much, but but I was busy. I, I took it seriously. I'm like perhaps other people have done it. And, uh, you know, what I mean, but I, I went to work every single day at the union, and, 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 and I traveled every weekend. To branches of the union, uh, to the detriment of my marriage, perhaps, uh, probably, and, and, and also my, my son, who I loved more than anything, but it was during his high school years, I gave everything to the union, and, and uh, so I didn't work much during those four years, partly by choice, and then after I was president, it ended in a not very pretty way, you know, my presidency, and uh, I didn't work for five years after I was president, and, and I think my agent, my manager would tell you it was because I was somewhat blacklisted because I really did try to be a real president. And I also said some intemperate things that I'm sure pissed some people off, you know, and, and, uh, and also, you know, people think of you because I was in the press a lot during those years as the president was sad. People tend to stop thinking you as an actor. You know, it's like when Jane Fonda became the queen of of exercise videos for a while. People thought of her as that, not as an actress. And um, not that I'm comparing myself to her, but I think people thought of me as this guy who was in the news in Variety and, and a hard reporter, not as an actor, but as, as a politician, basically. And, and it just, it hurt. So for nine years, basically, I didn't, I didn't work. And what might be considered to be my prime years, you know, I just done, like I said, 10 years of constant TV work before that. Now, how do you get back on track? And, uh, how do you how do you how do you pull yourself back because you're working? How does it happen? Like you're you're you know you're out of the role, you feel blacklisted. You know how does how do you pull yourself? First of all, how do you have the uh, the the con- well, not the I confidence? Bit, I, I, I was a little bit of I was at a bit, little bit of a loss. So I, I was to keep on plugging in, and thank God for my agent, my manager, the first agent, my manager Nancy Sanders, because they stuck with me through all those years. You know, and it was, that wasn't easy. And uh, but then. Uh, well, my, uh, David Milch, the great genius writer David Milch, who's, uh, you know, Deadwood and, and uh, NYPD Blue and uh, many, many great TV series, a genius. He wrote this TV show called The Luck with Dustin Hoffman about horse racing. And uh, I, I had seen him, I, I ran to him in New York at a very unhappy occasion of a months daughter had died and we were sitting shiva actually and David Mills came in and he said enough of the politics already you've given enough time to the union he said it's time to get back to acting and he told me he would he would push for me to get a role in his TV series Luck for HBO and he really did he really stood up for me got me to audition stood up for me once I auditioned and I got that part 
and that kind of got me started working again, you know, you know, feeling confident and like I could go out and audition and get stuff. And it's been pretty good since then. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, he, he he really helped me out a lot. I really owe him a lot. Now, now you've been on Bosch, you've been on Suits. Do yeah. do you get a do you get called now, or do you still have to audition? How does that work? I mean, because I know some people say you know they they have to they, they'll have to audition, but a lot of them now you can video yourself auditioning. Or how does how does it happen for like like Bosch and Suits? Did you have to actually audition? Well, for... by, yeah, well, it's weird because it's 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 weird with all the content out there now. There's just fewer and fewer auditions. You know, there are more and more offers. It's part of what we were battling over when I was president of SAG about their desire to obliterate the middle class. They don't spend a much. Now, most most of the things that I, the categories of the roles that I own, I'm trying to get are either offers, straight out offers, or self tapes, which is a whole new universe to me. I just got to do one of those last week. But it used to be when I before I became president of SAG, I, I could have like four or five auditions a week. If I wanted them now, I've had two auditions in the last year. There aren't that many of them. I've been offering things, you know. And, and, and you know, I, I did Bosch. I auditioned for and Shameless. I auditioned for and Suits. I auditioned for. Um, so I got a fairly good track record of getting the things I go up and audition for. But there's just fewer and fewer auditions. You know, I think I think this whole self taping thing is a whole weird thing. You know, I mean, with the way most auditions uh, happen now, I think. Where you know they, they decide not to spend the money on flying people to LA to have casting sessions in New York, which is where magic can happen. You know, in casting sessions, you audition for something, you do it, you talk to the director, they adjust you, you keep on working, you build a relationship. Now they 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 want you to put yourself on tape and be your own cinematographer, your own director. You know, and, and most people like me just want to be actors. We don't want to have to worry about being a cinematographer. Or Although I am DGA as well. I've directed some too, some of the television. But it's a whole different rigmarole getting jobs as an actor than it used to be. And I'm, trying, I'm, I'm actually still trying to figure out. I got very lucky. You know, I did Luck and I did Bosch and Suits and Shameless. They were all because of auditions. But uh, it's, 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 it's it, every every time a job ends, I feel like I'm starting again at this point. I didn't used to really feel that way, or maybe I did, but it, but it was but it was much easier. There was just more auditions, more opportunity to do work in the rooms where the auditioning was happening. There seems to be more continuity now. Now there seems to be more feeling in the business. If Alan Rosenberg doesn't want to do it, we'll go to the next guy who looks like you. You know, and that, that's all, uh, also what makes it more difficult now is uh, you know. You, it used to be if you guest star on a TV show in L.A., you could make 20, 30, 40. If you did Murder, She Will, because Angela Lansbury loved actors, you could make 50000 a week for guest starring on a TV show. Then you make 3300 bucks for the first rerun, 3300 bucks for the second rerun. Now, um, they've taken away our ability to negotiate. You know, it used to be you have an agent, and every time you work, you make slightly more because you built up a, a portfolio and you're more valuable. Now they have a thing called Top of Show, which is really a minimum, but the union called and negotiated a major role minimum. But at a certain point, all the networks got together and said, this is what we're going to do. This is a maximum we're going to offer. We're going to call it Top of Show. So now, like, the top you can make when you, when you get a guest star role is, like, something like eight grand. 
you know, and then you can't, it's very difficult to work your way up from there. So, so as a middle class, and, that, and, that, and residuals, and being able to negotiate your salary used to the way middle, it used to be the way that middle class actors like myself used to keep their heads above water. But now they've just made it much, much more difficult. With this, you know, I gotta work three, four, or five jobs to make the money I used to make in one job. And, 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 and they're still out there, the jobs are still out there but they're just harder to get. There's more competition and they're harder to get. Now, I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you, because, you know, you talked about the videotaping and, you know, magic can happen in the rooms. Um, I would think for an actor like you, who has done a lot of stage, it's more of an advantage for you to be in front of people than to do a video. Without question, yeah. I, I feel, I, I, I have a very good track record when I audition for this. I think I am. I'm, I'm, I'm trained on the stage. Your director gives me an adjustment that I can make it. I can show different sides of myself. You know, it, 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 it's a, I, I much prefer it. Not only that, you know, there are times in my career where I've been offered roles without having to audition, and rarely have they been happy experiences. Because it, it really helps to get in the room with the people you'll be working with and for before you do the job to make sure you're all on the same page, you all get along, you all know how to work together. Um, and, and, and so I, I like auditioning actually you know now, even if you don't get the job yeah go ahead sorry no I was going to say you like auditioning because you like that that I think the performing part of it do you still do theater now you know I, I haven't done one in about a year and a half but yeah I was pretty fortunate up until about a year and a half ago I was doing like a play a year here in Los Angeles and they were all you know you know LA is not the theater town that New York is, but there's some good theater happening out here. So yeah, I've been able to do some theater. Did a great play a couple of years ago called Influence, written by a playwright called Shem Bitterman. I got got nominated for an award. That was a, it was a, it was a, it was a really interesting play about the World Bank and, and, and a comedy about the World Bank. And I did a comeback little Sheba out here with Essa Payton Merkerson, which was fun. Yeah, I've been able to do some theater out here. Now what's but it's not you know it's it, it, about here and that's a whole other thing too. Get to get back into the union stuff. Uh, you know, out here it's all ninety nine C waiver stuff. You don't make any money doing it at all. Actors Equity Association out here tried to a couple of years ago push for minimum wage for actors who do theater in Los Angeles, which makes sense to me. It makes sense to me if you're entertaining people, you should make as much money as you would if you were working at McDonald's. However, a lot of actors out here, and I won't name them right now, but they want to keep the theater out here as sort of playground for themselves when they're not doing movies and television. So they don't want to curtail um, production. So they actually put the kibosh on the efforts of their union to get minimum wage for actors, which I thought was a, a terrible thing. Because really, you know, to do theater in L.A. is sort of like a hobby, which is unfortunate. I mean, there's still, you know, you know, uh, take part in your art form and, and, and have a, a worthwhile experience entertain people give them a worthwhile experience but if you can you can't keep your head above water you know I, I know a lot of theater professionals in LA who just love doing theater and are great actors and they really need that minimum wage to pay for babysitters transportation stuff like that it's not you don't get it you know you get you get car fare basically um, so it's still it, it, you you, you yeah, in New York, you can you can eat by. It's not easy, but you can live if you if you have a good theater career, you know, a decent theater career. Very difficult to do it if you're living in Los Angeles. 
So now, what's what's in your uh, future? What do you have coming up? I don't know. I don't know. You know, last thing I did was, which was really good for me, was Shameless. Um, I did like I thought that would be one episode. It turned into three seasons. You know, nineteen episodes it was a really good thing for me. But that end of the year ago, they they, they killed me without telling me they were killing me. <laughs> but it was a great run. It was a lot. Of, and, and since then, it's, you know, I've been looking for work. We'll see. You know, it's it's. Um, but you know, and to tell you the truth, and not to, and I, I love what I do. I love acting. I want to work. I'm looking for work. But the world is such a fucked up place right now. Excuse my language, but I, I, I'm a little bit obsessed with Donald Trump. What's going on with the world right now? And very little that I audition for. Very little that I see. Kind of, it all seems kind of silly to me when I look at it next to what's going on in the world and in this country. And, and it seems to me like we're living in. Nazi Germany, at least in the beginnings of Nazi Germany, and you know, I, I, I have no, no desire to be Joel Grey in Cabaret. You know, I, mean, I, I have a real desire to get politically active again, do something to fight against what's going on here. And uh, so, it's a, I, I'm in a little bit of a personal dilemma. I really, really want to work. I want to do something really worthwhile. But at the same, at the same time, it's tough to get motivated because I, I think I'm. I'm living, you know, I'm really happy. Like I said, I just got married. I'm delighted. We're having a wonderful time. But I think we're suffering a national depression. And, and whether we know it or not, and, 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 and it, it, uh, which, is, which, which leads us to have national anxiety attacks on a daily basis based on what this president does and the people around him. So I, that, that's sort of where my, when, when I think about what I want to do with my day, when I think about next week and next year, I think about Donald Trump and how we're just burgeoning into like horrible fucking territory and dangerous territory. And it, it, it occupies a lot of my time and a lot of my thoughts. I, like I said, I write songs and put them on YouTube. Now, what, so I'm available. I want to act. I'd love to do a play. I'd love to do anything. But again, I got, you know, it's, it's hard. That, 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 I don't, I'm not exactly sure why that's not a priority. Well, now, now what's, what, what's your YouTube? Do you have a YouTube channel? No, I don't. I got two. So like, I've written a bunch of songs. I only got two of them on YouTube right now. One of them, if you look it up, if you look up uh, The Ballad of the Poorly Educated, you can see one of my songs, The Ballad of the Poorly Educated, which is mostly just a regurgitation of a lot of things that Trump has said or stuff that might be going on in his mind. I wrote it the day after during the primaries. He said he loved the poorly educated because he found out he had won the vote among the poorly educated. And uh, so I wrote a song called The Battle of the Poorly Educated. If you, you look up that on YouTube, you'll find it. And my other my other one, which I think is a pretty nice, um, like Dylan-esque kind of folk song, protest song, is uh, if you look up the JWB apostrophe S, the JWB apostrophe S, which I don't know why there's an apostrophe in it, but it stands for Justice Without Bounds. JW, you'll see the other one. And I play, I, I'm not a very good singer. All my cousins are rock and roll stars. Steely Dan, we haven't talked about that. Also from the sake of Jersey, Donald Sagan. I'm not a really great singer or, or guitar player, but I have a guy playing with me who's really talented. And, and I think they're pretty good songs. Well, cool. Well, you There's know, a lot of anti-Trump songs out there. I think my two are two of the best. Well, I'm going to check them out. Thank you. Okay, and people, please check my Alan, you know, I want to thank you for talking. You've had you've had a great career, and you're very uh, very inspirational somewhat to people, I'm sure, to actors out there, just because you've had your, you know, in the beginning of your career, you had some hard 
breaks, you know, tough stuff. But then you've come back and you, you, you're always, you're resilient. And that's great. And that's why you've probably been working for so long. So people, please go on the IMDb. You know, it's just right there. It's IMDb. Look up Alan Rosenberg. Follow his film. Watch his stuff. Watch The Wanderers. Wanderers is a great movie, people. That's from 1979, but it's a great movie. And check out all his work. And uh, so, people, please check Alan out. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 750 episodes. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Twitter, at coopertalk. Instagram, at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time. Thank you.